wow, was that some kind of a night last night? The lightning, the thunder, the torrential rain. Now, now I've been doing a poll this morning. How many of you slept through it all? You just slept like a baby. Okay, all right. How many of you were like me, hardly slept a wink last night? Yep, a lot of us. It sounded like that thunder was right outside my window. Twice it sat me straight up in bed. I thought it was inside the bedroom. So I'm telling you, I am exhausted this morning. So you bear with me. If I start what seems like speaking in tongues, I haven't had a Pentecostal experience. I've had a Tropical Storm Erica experience. And if perchance I just fall out up here on the stage, please just let me sleep, okay? <laughs> Praise team, come back up. You take over and we'll, uh, we'll continue the service today. I'm thrilled that you're here and that you braved coming out this morning. Boy, it's already been a reward just praising the Lord, hasn't it? Because we once again have affirmed Jesus is all we need, and it's true. We're going to get back to our series, and I've got to go again quickly today. Kids Stuff for Adults. If you're a guest, and I have met several guests, we welcome you to this second service today. Uh, we're talking about stories that we teach our children in Sunday school and then in junior church, but oftentimes never come back to as adults. And so what we've been doing uh, since the beginning of the summer is we're coming back to some of these same familiar Bible stories and characters, and we're looking at them again, but this time through the filter of adult eyes and an adult perspective. Now, last week we talked about Jacob's wrestling match with the emissary of God, the angel of God, at the Jabbok River. The Jabbok River means wrestle, so it was the wrestling match at the Wrestle River. I don't have time to repeat everything we've talked about. Remember, Jacob is part of a very dysfunctional family. So if you're from a dysfunctional family, take heart because that's exactly the kind of family God uses. He had tricked his brother Esau out of his birthright, and so Esau was going to kill him. He had to flee. This is 21 years later. Now he's coming back to the home of his father, and he's going to have to confront Esau, his brother, who had basically put a contract at him. He was going to kill him the next time he saw him or when his father died. And so anyhow, this is what we're at. Uh, Jacob was getting ready to come back and meet Esau. He was upset, and God sent an angel to him that he wrestled with all night. He didn't first realize it was an angel of God. At first, he thought it was just some kind of a vagabond or maybe even an assassin coming to kill him. But when daylight started to break, he recognized that it was a divine encounter with with God's angel. And so he went from, in Genesis chapter 32, the first book in the Bible, if you want to open your Bible, if you brought it this morning, he went from trying to defeat this adversary to hanging on with all the strength that he had left. And he said to that, that angel, I will not let go of you until you bless me. That's kind of where we were last week. He grabbed a hold of God. Finally, he got it. That the only way he was going to have peace and, and security in his life was with God, not through his own manipulative agenda and skills that he had been using his entire life. And so that's exactly what happened. And in fact, the angel says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob, you're going to be called Israel. And Israel means God fights. It means triumphant with God. And so finally, God reaches down and says, Jacob, you've got to stop trying to manipulate your way through life and manipulate people and manipulate circumstances, you've got to trust me and trust my blessing on your life. Well, he blessed him, and so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. After this, he sets up a monument, and he calls it Peniel. And he says, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet I didn't die. He's got this blessing. He's got a new name. 
He's got a spiritual high like he had never known before. This was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to him. He had a direct visitation with God, and that would be exciting, wouldn't it? Amen? Amen it would be. But from this high of high places, it would not be very long until he would be in the deepest despair he had ever experienced in his life. A short time later, this same man with the same victorious moment whose very name is changed to Israel, God fights, finds himself in Genesis 37, tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and mourning for his son for many days. It says, all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. From this amazing spiritual high to this horrible, unimaginable, emotional low. Now, I believe that in a great part, this low became a reality in his life because Jacob let go of God. He let go of God. He had him. God blessed him. Have you ever heard the saying, old habits die hard? That's exactly what's about to happen in the life of Jacob as we continue the story. So Genesis chapter 32 He's just finished getting the blessing from the angel. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel. Remember Peniel's that monument that he built that's saying that I saw God face to face and I survived. It was the reminder, it was the monument to remind him of the blessing of God in his life, of God's visitation upon him. And it says, and he was limping because of his hip. His hip is still out of place and it's still hurting because of that wrestling match where the angel had touched him. So it's a reminder of all the amazing things that had just happened. And then look what scripture says. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with 400 men. The apostle Peter was to have a similar experience thousands of years later. Remember when Peter was invited by Jesus to get out of the boat and to walk on the water. And he started walking towards Jesus on the water defying the laws of nature. But then he started looking around him, right? Right? And he began to see the waves and the winds. And Peter sunk immediately. Why? Because he took his eyes off Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening to Jacob here. He's taking his eyes off God. And coming from this, immediately coming from this this, this unbelievable spiritual high. Now he sees Esau and all that human fear comes rushing back into him. And it says, so... It goes on to say, he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So now he sees Esau. And now, instead of knowing that God had just said, I'm with you, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to prosper you, you're Israel, your name is God fights, triumph with God. Now he's approaching his brother, and he's, he succumbs to his human fear, and he bows down, he goes, and he bows down. Then he comes a little closer, and he bows down again. Comes a little closer, and he bows down again. What's he trying to do? He's trying to manipulate his brother. He's trying to say, see my humility before you? Then, then it goes on, it says, Esau ran to meet Jacob, Genesis 33, verse 4, and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. 
See, all that wasn't necessary. God had already ordained that this was going to be a happy reunion, a joyous reunion. God had already changed the murderous heart of Esau. Esau couldn't wait to see him. When he saw him, he jumped off his horse and he grabbed him and he hugged him and he kissed him. And together they wept. God had taken care of the whole thing. But look what it says. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? Jacob answered, these are the children of God that God has graciously given what? Your servant. Man, he's really playing it up. Oh, this is my family that God has graciously given to to me. Your servant, Esau. Now look what happens. It says, Genesis 33, says verse 6, the maidservants and their children approach and bow down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. He had choreographed this whole thing. He had got back in his flesh. He had let go of God. And he said, all right, here's how we're going to do this. Now, you guys, well, I, well, I'm going to go first. And I'm going to bow down seven times to show my brother humility. Then, then when you come up, you guys all bow down too. Then the next line, when you guys come up, you bow down too. Next line, when you come up, you bow down too. See, he, he's manipulating circumstances. He's trying to manipulate his brother into a favorable position, even though by this time, God had already put him in a favorable position. Esau, verse 8, asked, what do you mean by all these droves I met? Remember the day before, he had instructed his servants to take sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and to go before him in in successive lines, three other lines. And he said, now, when you see my my brother Esau, you say, well, these are from your, your brother Jacob who's coming home, and these are gifts for you. And so Esau, he's looking at this, he's going, what is this all about, Jacob? What's all these droves? What's all these this stuff I see? And Jacob says, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Again, he's manipulating. Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Esau said, what are you doing? I've got everything I need. Forget it. We're together again. Let's just enjoy being brothers again. He said, you keep what you've got. I don't need it. Look what Jacob says. Verse 10, Genesis 33. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Now, you know what? We might at face value say, well, Jacob was trying to do a good thing. Jacob was repentive in his heart. And, and, and he, wanted, he wanted Esau to know that, that, that everything had changed, and he wanted to, to give him these gifts. But, but if you understood the culture of that day, you would understand that something far more sinister is going on here. Jacob says, when, when Esau says, no, you, you keep your stuff. I, I've got everything. I don't need this stuff. What's all this about? Jacob says, please, no. See, in that culture... If someone accepted a gift from you, it was a covenant of non-hostility towards you. By Esau accepting that gift, and by Jacob insisting that he did, what Jacob was trying to do was once again manipulate his brother in his circumstance. He was trying to manipulate his brother into receiving those gifts because he knew that in their culture, in their tradition, if Esau received those gifts... It was a covenant that Esau would not bring harm against Jacob and his family. 
So the scripture says when Jacob insisted, Esau finally said, okay. I got to believe at that moment Esau was looking at his brother Jacob and said, you haven't changed a bit. You had same old Jacob. See, Jacob let go of God. And I believe through that experience and other experience that, that came after it that I don't have time to share with you. You read in your Bible. Go home and read about it. Ultimately, it brings Jacob to the lowest emotional point of his life. Now, what's this all about? Why is he mourning his son Joseph? Well, let's find out as the story goes on. Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, we, we got to stop right there. Because there's such an important life lesson, we just can't go by it. Jacob was repeating exactly what his father and mother had done, shown parental favor to his brother, and that's what caused this whole mess in the first place. And yet he didn't learn from their mistakes. And oh my good, what a lesson we should embrace. We need to learn from not only our own mistakes, but from the mistakes of others. But he just repeated the same thing, and he decided that he was going to favor a son over his other sons. It says because he had been born to him in his old age. And it goes on to say, and he, Jacob, made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not even speak a kind word to him. One day, Jacob said to Joseph, I want you to go check up on your brothers. They're out with the flocks. You go find them and check up on them and come back and give me a report. And so Joseph goes to obey his father, and he goes out, and he searches high and low, and he even has to ask directions. And someone finally tells him that they, they, he thinks they're up in Dothan. So Joseph goes up to Dothan. But it says that when his brothers saw him in the distance, immediately they plotted to kill him. Now, you know, sometimes we think, and sometimes we even have mistakenly taught that all this anger was about this robe, that his father gave him this beautiful, ornate robe, and sometimes it's called the coat of many colors, and, and Broadway made a, made a whole Broadway musical out of it. But it wasn't just the coat. The coat, I think, was the straw that broke the camel's back of a long history of events that took place, of broken relationships that led them to have this kind of malice, this kind of hatred in their hearts. Now, Joseph had immediately, prior to this, not helped his case any. He's 17 years old. He is the 11th of 12 brothers. Can you imagine the family dynamics in that, just alone, right? He's the youngster, probably getting mistreated by his older brothers like most of us older brothers mistreated our younger brothers. But then God has given him a special spiritual power to interpret and have dreams. And Joseph had had a couple dreams just recently. And in his youthful arrogance, in his youthful full passion, he shared these dreams with his brothers. And the dreams amounted to this, that one day in the dreams, his brothers were going to bow down because he was going to rule over them. Then he had another dream kind of like that dream in which not only his brothers but his mom and dad, in fact, his father, Jacob, his father, Israel, rebuked him for that dream. 
But that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. See, because by this time, there was so much family dysfunction that it gave birth to these murderous thoughts. To understand that, we've got to understand that, that Jacob had 12 sons. How many knew that? He had 12 sons. They would become the 12 tribes of Israel. They'd become the 12 tribes of Israel. But how many know or did not know that those 12 sons came from four different moms? They didn't come from one mother. They came from four moms. Well, six of them came from Leah, that, that first wife that Jacob got that was deceived into having by Laban. Then two sons came from Rachel. In fact, giving birth to Benjamin, her final son, she died in childbirth. And then other sons were given from their maidservants, Billa, Rachel's maidservant, and Zilpha, Leah's maidservant. And we'll get more to that, but 12 sons now from four different moms. Now, we got to go all the way back to when Leah became his first wife. Remember, we talked about that last week, how that happened, how he was full. He had worked seven years because he was in love with Rachel, the younger daughter of, of Laban. She was so beautiful. And he said, I'll work seven years, but at the end of the seven years, you've got to give me your daughter's hand in marriage. Well, remember, when that seven years was up, they threw the wedding feast, but Laban snuck in Leah instead of Rachel. And so Jacob consummated the wedding with Leah. And so next day, he knew he was fooled, and he said to Laban, what have you done to me? He says, well, if you want Rachel, you've got to work seven more years. See, it's our tradition that the older daughter gets married first. And so he works those seven more years. But let's revisit the story from Leah's perspective. She'd been sent in by her dad to give Jacob a taste of his own trickery. But look what it says. And this broke my heart. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her, her womb. But Rachel remained barren. She gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Look what she says, surely my husband will love me now. Doesn't that break your heart? This is a real woman in real time. All she wants is, is for her husband to love her. And so finally she's able to give him a son. She goes, now, now maybe, maybe my husband will love me. But it doesn't happen. But God continues to bless her and she keeps having children. Later on she has another son. She names him Simeon. Then she gives another son. And look what she says, Genesis chapter 29, verses 33 and 34. Now at last my husband will become attached to me because now I've given him three sons now. Now surely my husband is going to appreciate me. Rachel hasn't had any children. I've given him three sons. Surely now my husband will love me. No. In fact, it goes on to a sixth son. Genesis 30, verse 19 says, Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. I mean, can we just stop for a moment and get real and not make this some kind of a myth, mythological Bible story? This was a real human being. This is a suffering woman. This is a woman who's been rejected. All she wants is love, and she can't find love. And she keeps producing children, and even male children, hoping that now my husband will pay some attention to me. Now he'll love me. 
Well, Scripture says in Leah stopped having children. But Rachel was jealous because she had given sons. And so Rachel does the same thing that Sarah had done with Abraham. And she, she brings her, her maid servant, Zilpha. And, and she says, well, if I can't give you a child, maybe you can have a children through my maidservant. So she has Jacob sleep with Zilpha. And Zilpha gets a child. But then, then Leah gets jealous. So she sends in Billah, her maidservant. And she gets pregnant by that. And so all this stuff starts happening back and forth. And all these women are getting pregnant. And they're competing for love. Don't you know that these sons of Leah and Zilpha saw the pain in their moms? Don't you know they saw their mom's rejection? Don't you know they saw the hurt? Don't you know that wasn't passed on to them? Genesis 30 verse 22 says, finally God remembered Rachel. She had been praying for God to to bless her, and so finally he allows her to conceive. And she has a son, Joseph. And she goes on praying, God, give me yet another son, and God ultimately does Benjamin. But again, as I said, she dies giving birth to him. See, God knew, and the family knew, and the boys knew, that Jacob always favored Rachel and Joseph. Now, now you want to see to what extent? You remember back when he's getting ready to meet Esau? We said, now he went first, and then he said, then you guys go, and you guys go. Look at the order he put them in. Genesis 33, verses 1 and 2, he said, looked up, saw Esau coming so, with his 400 men, so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. Now look what it says. He put the maidservants and their children in the front, then Leah and her children next, then Rachel and Joseph. Basically, here's what he's saying. He said, I'll put the maidservants and the sons. They're still his sons. See, they're the least important to me. I'll put them first. And if Esau turns murderous, they're the first ones to go. Then he puts Leah and her children next in line. If his bloodthirst isn't satisfied by then, then he can kill them and her sons. But Rachel and my Joseph... I'm going to put them in the back. I'm going to protect them. Don't you know they knew this? Don't you know they understood this? Don't you know the disdain that their father had for their lives and the lives of their mothers? And all of this hatred, all of this hurt, all of this rejection, had built up over so many years to the point that now their hatred became murderous intentions. And so when they saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. And before he even reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, Genesis 37, verse 21 says, when Reuben, the firstborn of Leah, heard it, he tried to save him. And basically, the, the story is this, that Reuben said, we, we can't do this. We can't kill our brother. I mean, I don't like him either. He's a brat. He's a big mouth. He's a dreamer. But we can't kill him. After all, he's our flesh and blood. He says, Here's what, let's just throw him this cistern here in the desert. See, his plan, the Bible says, was later he was going to go back and, and retrieve his brother and take him back to his father. And so that's exactly what they did. When Joseph came, they stripped him of his robe. 
And they threw him in a cistern. There was no water in it, so his life wasn't threatened. Reuben went on. Again, intending to circle back later on and, and, and rescue Joseph and take him back home. But in the meantime, his brothers saw a caravan coming to Midianites. They were traveling down to Egypt. And so his brothers, conniving, said, you know, what, 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 really, what use of it is? We don't get benefit if we kill our brother. So let's just sell him. We'll sell him as a slave. So that's what they did. They sold him as a slave to the Midianites going down into Egypt. And then they took his coat and they killed a goat. And they put that goat's blood all over the coat. And they went back to their father. Genesis chapter 37, verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the blood. They took the ornament robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Again, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. Their father, they had seen over and over again their father's manipulative behavior. They'd seen over and over again how he had manipulated people and how he had mistreated people through his trickery. And so now, they don't come back and say anything. They just come back with a bloody robe. And they say, Dad, we found this robe. Dad, could this possibly be the robe that you you gave to our brother Joseph? Could, could, Could it be? So I'm going to say when he saw the robe, he immediately recognized it. And Jacob, Israel said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Anyone who's a parent, anyone who's a grandparent would know the emotional horror of that thought. But see, those brothers, they didn't didn't tell him what happened. They allowed him to connect dots in his own mind, his own imagination. And that imagination brought him to the lowest emotional point he had ever experienced in his life, where he literally despaired of life. Couldn't be comforted by anyone. I truly believe that his pain was caused because he let go of God. See, after that mountaintop experience when he wrestled with the angel of God and he grabbed a hold of God and he had the blessing of God, it was at that juncture in his life that Jacob could have gone to his sons and said, guys, we got to have a family meeting. I, I know I've done some horrible things. I, I haven't treated, Leah, I haven't treated you right, and I haven't treated you guys right, and our family's been a mess, but this is because I've been tied up with myself, but now I've I put my faith in God, and now I have God's blessing, and we're going to have a different family experience. We're going to have a, an experience characterized by love and mutual respect, and I think he could have put his family on a whole different track. But see, he let go of God. He lost control of his family. And his sons turned on him. Jacob never developed a real relationship with God. Did he believe in God? Oh, yes. Did he respect God? Oh, yes. 
Did he covet God's blessing? Oh, yes, but he never wanted a relationship with God. And so Jacob never realized the fullness of God's blessing. God had promised him to bless him like no man had ever been promised to bless. It was already his for the taking. God didn't even put any conditions on it. But Jacob couldn't get himself out of the way. And it brought tragedy to his family. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament is a New Testament book written to Hebrew people, to Jewish people. And in chapter 11, there's a chapter that we call the Faith Hall of Fame, where the writer of Hebrews lists all these great Old Testament Bible characters and talks about their faith and, and, and they're commended for their faith. And it talks about Enoch and it talks, talks about Moses and it talks about Abraham. And it, it says a lot about them. It says, oh, and they did this and they did this and oh, they were so faithful and this and that and the other. And just praising their faith. But when it gets to Jacob, Hebrews eleven twenty one says, almost just kind of a passing thought, just a passing line, no elaboration. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And worshiped them as he leaned on the top of his staff. See? Almost a passing thought. And it goes right on to somebody else. See, God had kept his promise. And his name ultimately became the name of the nation that now exists as the nation of Israel. But he never developed a relationship with God. And because he never developed a relationship with God, he never enjoyed God's full blessing in his life. And because he didn't have God's full blessing in his life, neither did his family. Jacob never realized it. Now, let's bring it home. Let's bring it right here to the house. Let's bring it to my life. Let's bring it to your life. What does any of this have to do with us? Paul, that great New Testament author, that great New Testament evangelist to Gentile nations wrote two letters to a church in Corinth. And they were actually both letters of rebuke because they weren't getting it right. They didn't grab a hold of God. They believed in God, they believed in Jesus, but, but they weren't developing a relationship with him. And so in this first letter, in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, Paul declares this as a reminder, as a wake-up call to them. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying this, there is no other foundation on which we can live our lives than the foundation given by God, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Basically, this is a call to grab a hold of Jesus. He's saying, listen, you guys are missing so much. You're, you're, you're sidetracked. You're going the wrong direction. Therefore, you cannot enjoy God's full blessing on your life. He's saying, your foundation is wrong. He's saying, grab a hold of Jesus He's the only foundation that comes with an eternal promise, that comes with eternal security. Say this with me. Jesus is the foundation of my life. Say it with me. Jesus. Now say it like you believe it. Jesus. Now, 
Now, now listen, let that sink in. Let that resonate. Jesus is the foundation of my life. Nothing else. No one else. It's Jesus. Jesus himself later said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff that we get sidetracked in life will be added as God sees we can responsibly handle it and as we need it. But Jesus says, again, same thing. He says, seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness. Don't get distracted. Don't try to manipulate your life and your circumstances. Your foundation is Jesus. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to say, if any man builds on this foundation, Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hazer, straw, In other words, if we take Jesus, now we're talking to believers, by the way. We're not talking to atheists. We're not talking to agnostics. We're not talking to people who have no part of God. These are people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is a church like this church right here. These are people like you and me. And he's saying, listen, if anybody tries to add on that foundation, well, yeah, I got Jesus. I'll put that in the back of my pocket. But, you know, my life, I don't want just to be about Jesus. I don't want it to be found on him. I want to found it on money. I want to found it on material things. I want to have it found on fame. I want to have it found on this, this, and I'm going to build on that foundation. That's what it's saying. It goes on to say, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Now, now don't miss this. There's a judgment day coming for believers. It's not a judgment day that determines where we're going to spend eternity because the only thing that determines that is our faith in Jesus Christ. That's a gift. That comes from God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works so no one will boast. It's not talking about where it's talking about a hold it's talking about us and how we live our lives subsequent to our faith in Jesus Christ. It says it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. Now, now get that. One day we are going to stand before Jesus and we are going to give an account of the way we lived our life, what the foundation of our life was, what we chose, whether we chose to have a real relationship with Jesus or whether we decided, well, Jesus was a compartment of our life, but my foundation has a lot of different elements to it. See, one day all that's going to be revealed. Now, if the way we've lived our life for him. If the foundation of our life is sure enough, then we're going to be rewarded. Or are we going to be rewarded? Unbelievably. And that's his passion. That's his, that's his, his predisposition is to reward us. But says, but if not, if we've got off course, if we become Esau, if we become Jacob, we're going to suffer loss. And I know you're tempted to say, now wait a minute, as believers, doesn't the Bible say that he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes? And there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. yes. Ultimately, that's true, but not yet. Not before this happens. So there will be a conscious celebration of gain. There will be a conscious lamenting of loss. As I studied that, that drove me internally to ask myself the question, am I developing a real relationship with God? Even as a pastor, you know what? That doesn't mean anything. Am I developing a real relationship, Pete? Not Pastor Pete, Pete. Am I developing a real relationship with God? 
Am I positioning myself to be able to receive the fullness of God's blessing upon my life and upon the life of my family? Am I doing that? Am I really doing that? What's that day going to look like for me? Will I receive my reward or will everything I've done and all these sermons I've preached and all that be burned up because my life didn't match it and because my motivation wasn't right? So what do we do? What do I do? Well, Scripture gives us guidelines. tells us how to prepare. And one of the first things it says is to study. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, we need to study his word. We need to know the Bible. We need to read it. We need to ingest it. We need to apply it to our lives because that is God's guidebook for how we live our life. That is the criteria for how he's going to bless us or it tells us that if we follow the lives like Esau or like Jacob, how we're going to miss out on God's fullness, on his blessing, on our life, on that day of reward. We need to study. That's why we have life groups. That's why we, 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 we speak right from Scripture here in services. That's why we have everything we have, so that you can prepare yourself. What if, what if someday we stand before, and one of the criteria that he's going to ask us in giving us rewards is, well, tell me what you know about my word. Well, what's the first five books of the Bible? Well, I don't know. Well, what's the, what are the Gospels? I don't know. Well, yeah, I don't know. See, we need to study. Do our best to present ourselves before the Lord as someone who said, I cared about you enough to learn everything I possibly could about you. We need to serve, see? Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. No matter what we're doing, we go to work tomorrow or later today, when you go to school, whatever it is, do it to the glory of God. Do it as if we're doing it for Jesus Christ himself. Everyone, that's what we talk about. Every member should be a member of a ministry here. We should all be doing something. We should be serving God because we realize that's part of the criteria for what he's going to bless us for. We need to give. Oh, I know it's a sensitive area. But 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Some people so consumed with money and materialism that they never develop a real relationship with God. And what happens? They're pierced with many griefs. Why? Because all along, God's trying to bring them back. He's having wrestling matches with them. He said, come on, you're off track. Come on back to where I can bless you. Jesus said in Luke 16, 11, so if you have not been trustworthy handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you can't handle dollars and cents, who's going to trust you with eternal responsibilities? Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, given it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured in your lap. Look what it says now. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, we need to share the gospel story. We need to share what Jesus has done in our life. Proverbs eleven thirty says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Listen, there is nothing more that pleases God than we, when we have some part in bringing someone else to faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's the reason he's holding Jesus from coming back. He's waiting to give one more man, one more woman, one more chance to trust Jesus as their Savior. Now, now let, me, let me get real 
real honest with you. My passion as one of your pastors, my passion is to help you prepare to meet Jesus someday. To help you be able to stand before Jesus and have him lavish the blessing that he wants to lavish on you. And he does. He wants to give it to you. But he won't just give it to us because he's some kind of nice grandpa. He'll give it to us because we have demonstrated that we desired a real relationship with him. That our foundation was Jesus Christ. Notice that scripture says in 1 Corinthians 3, if what he has built survives or receive his reward, if it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flame. Again, we're not talking about who's going to heaven. We're talking about what kind of rewards we'll have in eternity. But, but look at the characteristic of the one who'd be like Jacob. The one, yeah, we'll make it, but barely make it. Only make it because of the love and the grace of Jesus Christ but stand before Jesus Christ on that day having nothing that he can justifiably reward us for. Listen, don't be an Esau. Don't be one who doesn't value the things of God and just live life for whatever you want to live it for and then one day stand before God and beg him, oh, how about me, Dad? How about me? Isn't there a blessing for me? Don't be Jacob. Don't be someone who tries to manipulate your way through life and your circumstances. Make your foundation Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of my life. Say it again. Jesus is the foundation of my life. Say it again. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. Embrace it, love it, live it. Because the final promise is, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, that isn't some Bible story. That's not some mythological hope. That's not some Hollywood musical. That is eternal reality. God says, I've got a plan for you. My, you make me your foundation, and I will reward you with things that no eye has ever laid their gaze on. I'll reward you to things that no one has ever heard about. I will reward you with things that no one has even imagined because there's so much greater than anything man can ever invent. That's what I want to give you. And he wants to lavish that in our lives. Don't be an Esau. Don't be a Jacob. Right now, right here, today. Say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you that you love us enough to wrestle with us. Thank you that you don't just give up on us because of our apathy or our indifference or our rebellion or just in our over-involvement with life. Thank you that you keep coming back like you are right now in many hearts and many minds. I know you are. I know you have in mind. And God, thank you that you never give up on us, but you keep coming back. Lord, I know the blessing you want to give to every man and woman here today. Lord, help us right now. Not just to say it, but to believe it. Jesus is the foundation of my life. 
God, use us for your glory. Draw us close to you. Yes, wrestle with us when we're getting in the wrong direction. But bring us to the place where our passion is to bring glory to you and to bring others to faith in you. For this we will praise you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.